hear people that are Calvinists harp on this. God sovereign, God sovereign, God sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. They just keep repeating it. And they repeat it so much, you start to think it's a biblical truth. Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus said, I can't, I'm dead. That's not what he did. Lazarus came out. So you mean to tell me a dead person can respond to the command of Christ? And then you take lessons from Judas White and Jeff Durbin. It shows in this kind of sequential format. And <laughs> Do you really believe that it parallels the method of exegesis that we utilize to demonstrate those other things? Um, no. Some new Calvinists, even pastors, very openly smoke pipes and cigars just as they drink beer and wine. Jesus cannot override your unbelief. You quoted a verse like that to him. You know what it would sound like if you were listening to it? He wouldn't wouldn't make any sense to him. A self-righteous, legalistic, deceived jerk. realize that he's gone from predeterminism now he's speaking of some kind of middle knowledge that god now has to i deny and categorically deny middle knowledge don't uh, beg the question that would demand me to force you to e embrace it not always talking about necessarily God choosing something for no apparent reason, but you're choosing that meat because it's a favorable meat. There's a reason to have the choice of that meat. And now, from our underground bunker deep beneath the faculty cafeteria in New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, safe from all those moderate Calvinists, Dave Hunt fans, and those who have read and reread George Bryson's book, we are Radio Free Geneva, broadcasting the truth about God's freedom to save for his own eternal glory. All right. Well, we are here with Radio Free Geneva. The only reason these programs go long is because of how long the introduction is. <laughs> the, the theme is, it's 3.03 already, so uh, yeah, the, the theme goes... Very, very long. Uh, welcome to the program. If you're new to Radio Free Geneva, this is a uh, this is the dividing line. But once in a while, we do something specific with a different introduction and uh, and outgoing music as well, where we deal with the good, the bad, and the ugly as far as objections to Reformed theology. Now, just this morning, I was talking about the Calvinist Club on uh, on Twitter. And the fact that I don't want to be a part of the Calvinist Club on Twitter, um, and the fact that there are a lot of uh, Calvinists who can be really um, uh, unenjoyable to be around. So, uh, but you can love the theology and not necessarily 
love the people who uh, embrace that theology uh, or don't make good application of it any, any way I want to look at it. Anyway, uh, some of you will recall that, uh, I don't know, about two months ago, whenever I was last on the road, um, toward the end of my time, I think I was, yeah, I was, I was on the return trip. It's strange how I'm, I think about, you know, where I was when I did a program uh, in the studio. Uh, it was, uh, it was on the return trip. Um, oh yes, yes. I, I even remember where I downloaded the video at, which, uh, RV park I was at. Anyway, uh, I responded fairly briefly. It was part of just a regular program. We didn't do a full, I don't think we did a full radio free Geneva, uh, to Jason Breda, uh, Breda, Breda, uh, I think it's Breda, um, the someone had sent me a link to a series of, if I recall, it was five videos, and basically, uh, his claim is that he was a Calvinist for 10 years, and now he has renounced Calvinism and he is exposing Calvinism and he wants people to understand why they should be doing the same thing. And it's not the first. Let me see. Have we ever talked with former Calvinists before? Oh, yes. Yes, we have. <laughs> Many uh, over the years. And it's, it's always been an interesting experience, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and so I had taken the time to download a couple of these videos. Uh, the first two, as I recall. And they're, they're very high quality. Uh, he does a very good job with uh, with the video and split screening and all sorts of camera effects. Way way beyond anything I do. Um, of course, we do this live too. I don't think he does live stuff, so it's a little different. When you got, you can tell when he's talking how many times, even in one segment, he has stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. That takes a lot of time. I mean, it took me a lot a lot of time last night just simply to time index uh, what I'm uh, using Note Studio here. Uh, to be able to get to the key issues, and I still, I still could have done a whole lot more, uh, but lots and lots of other things going on, which I mentioned on Twitter. If you're interested in reading about that stuff, anyway, uh, but they're high quality, and that makes them easy to um, find things because when you use the split screen, then even when you're scrolling you can be looking for a certain like text over in the split screen and stuff like that. And it's, that's, uh, that's very useful, very helpful. Uh, I like that. So give him kudos for that. But what I did is I found a section on John six in listening initially, and I'm listening to it going. And so we responded to the points that he made uh, on the dividing line. And he promised to give a response. Now, he did a response video. Honestly, I didn't listen to it because it didn't involve John 6. That was the only, th that was the primary thing I was, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about what the text says. I'm concerned about what this says. Why am I reformed? Because of what this says. I apply the same methods of interpretation um, to the passages on Reformed theology that I do on the deity of Christ or the Trinity or the resurrection or atonement, all sorts of things like that. And so the one on John 6 came out a few days ago. It had been a few weeks, but again, 
I can understand why. Um, with all the fancy stuff that he does. Um, <laughs> I'm just looking down here at a freeze frame. And, uh, you know, I've got my, my water. Actually, it's got some electrolytes in it. Here, he's got a water cup that I'm not sure if he knew was in the shot. But just the way I looked at it, it looked like an old ashtray. <laughs> it's, just, it's not, but um, I, I saw someone recently, you know those those things on Twitter where they post the old, old... How how old does this make you if you recognize this stuff? And it was a McDonald's ashtray. Did they have ashtrays? Oh, yeah, they had ashtrays when you were working at McDonald's. Rich... Rich has a degree in in um, hamburgerology uh, from McDonald's. That's his his uh, claim to fame. And um, back then, you could still. I remember when people would smoke in McDonald's. Man, it drove me nuts. It was you know I'd be moving tables around and doing all the rest of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, anyways, boy, did we uh, chase a rabbit on that one, didn't we? <laughs> we all right. Um, so back to Radio Free Geneva. So. I grabbed the uh, the response and I, I started listening through it. And first of all, Jason seems like a really nice guy. Um, he is on a crusade. And that comes out over and over again. I'm not sure that he realizes how much it comes out. That his big thing is anti-Calvinism now. And for most of us Calvinists, we're not into anti-Arminianism or whatever. Um, you know, I mean, I deal with a wide variety of topics on this program and in, in this ministry. And hey, last night, this morning, I was trying to do this thing called peacemaking. <laughs> you know, say, saying, hey, could, could we all stop? Could we all put our swords up for a while, you know, and stop hacking away at uh, fellow believers or or at least think through what you're saying about who is and who isn't a fellow believer. Anyway, Jason says some strong things about Calvinism. So I, I think it is important to start off um, by pointing that out. And so uh, let's, let's listen right here at the beginning. Um, oh, yes, I need to make sure I, I turn... I, actually turned that off it would not have worked uh because i had to listen to some things over here so now hopefully hopefully it will work oh uh eh, yeah uh well maybe not uh, boy that was slow that worries me you shouldn't have to click on it twice to get it to work but anyway uh here's in his own words some of the things that he has to say um about about Calvinism. My goal in doing this series, you know, going against Calvinism isn't to tear down people, but it is to shine a light for the truth of what I see in the scriptures and, and really to help people see who God truly is. Because the Calvinistic perspective of who God is does make God, God's character and everything else different than what I now see as God's character. And so just know that the reason why I'm doing this is not to bash, it's not to condemn in any way in that sense any particular person, but it is to dismantle what I believe are the lies of the enemy that have been woven into the concept of 
what is known as Calvinistic Reformed theology and just lay it out there that this is not who I think we see who God is. Okay, so lies of the enemy. Um, I'm going to be refuting these things. Um, th this is not, I have a different perspective or, you know, you can take that view. I think there's a better view. These are the lies of the enemy. And so at the end of this uh, video, uh, and obviously we're skipping over a bunch of stuff, we'll go back to it, obviously. Uh, at the end of this video, you get similar language. It's how we come to know who Jesus is. And isn't it just like the devil to take something that is good, such as God's character and how he's worked in salvation and distort the truth and create lies and actually build a system that tries to advocate that this is a higher view of God and this is how God gets all the glory and yet it's a falsification. It's not true. It's not. So notice, notice what's on the screen there. Um, paint a different picture of God and his character. Create disunity within the body of Christ. Hiding the truth so people cannot find it. Blind the eyes of those seeking God, lie and deceive. Now, those are um, about as strong an assertion as you can possibly make. Um, so, uh, when I when I have to say, as I will have to say uh, a number of times in this program, uh, that brother brother Jason is wrong uh, about what he's saying, that he either. <sighs> You know, when you when you hear quote unquote former Calvinists pulling these guys out and uh, lighting up the fire, uh, there's a lot of fire going on right now this time of year. Uh, it's November, so there. I don't I don't personally have a um, a flamethrower. Uh, you don't have a flamethrower either. They're selling them. They're actually they're actually gonna they're actually gonna sell no quarter November flamethrowers. It really wouldn't work too well in here. It's a sort of a sort of a small small studio for that, but we could go out in the side yard, no? Rich is saying I can't have a flamethrower, and I'm because this guy would go up so fast. <laughs> anyway, uh I know you did take the Bic away, but I know where I have my Bic stored. So, uh, and I like those new electronic ones that do the little sparky thing instead of having to worry about propane and whatever it is. They're, those are cool. Anyway, uh, straw men. Yes. Why is it that former Calvinists erect so many straw men uh, and say, I used to believe this? And we're all sitting there going, no, you didn't. <laughs> None of us believed that. What, what are you talking about? And that's what I had said. When I did my first response was, why does this why does this happen? I don't I, I don't really understand this, but there is a very uh, strong anti-reformed uh, anti-Calvinist bias, and I don't think that Brother Jason recognizes. You know, he's always saying, "Well, the Calvinists read this in and read that in," and he makes a lot of I think sort of silly assertions that, "Well, notice it doesn't say this or it doesn't say that." Um, as if any of us had ever said that certain um, terminology, certain language, is actually found in the pages of Scripture. Um, we are synthesizing the entirety of Scripture on certain topics. Um, but he has embraced a form of synergism 
which, again, when you don't realize it is your system, then you're back to the old Dave Hunt thing. Uh, I have no traditions, James. <laughs> and, uh, well, yes, Dave, actually you do. And the, the less you... The less you're aware of your traditions, the less likely it is you're going to be able to actually examine your traditions biblically. But the main thing that we're going to do today is in looking at his attempt to work through John 6, I think he's gotten a lot of this from Leighton Flowers. I know he's been influenced by Ken Wilson. There's no question about that. But the argument seems to be pretty much the Leighton Flowers argument which is fundamentally that the people that are given by the Father to the Son are those who are already worshipers of the Father, and that freely. So that gets you around the whole election issue, is that people can freely choose to be worshipers of the Father, and then the Father will give them to the Son. There's a problem with that, obviously, because they'll admit that John 6, 44 says, no one can come to Christ unless drawn by the Father. So you can't come to one person of the Godhead, but you can freely come to another person of the Godhead? And, and didn't Jesus make the reverse claim in Matthew 11 uh, that he reveals the Father to those whom he wills? You could end up with some interesting Trinitarian issues uh, here if you try to go this direction, but I I'm not sure that they've really thought through that your soteriology and your theology proper might need to be somewhat connected uh, or consistent with themselves. So let's get into it um, and uh, sit back, enjoy, uh, take notes. Uh, hopefully this will be useful to folks. I will try to I will try 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 to be somewhat uh, concise, but we will uh, we will see. Now you'll see on the screen here there are Calvinistic connected scriptures in the Gospel of John. I think there are definitely three main texts that the Calvinists would draw out as the reason as to why they believe that John chapter six advocates for Calvinism. I'm gonna I'm gonna include that there's a fourth one, and they're all kind of in that John six thirty seven through 665 range. Now, okay, honestly, I did not get the feeling that Brother Jason has listened to any of the extensive um, studies and exegesis we've done of John chapter 6. I didn't get that feeling. And obviously, there is a flow that comes out of the conversation that begins in the synagogue when Jesus comes to Capernaum walking water. The disciples, would-be disciples, follow him, and once they find him, conversation of the bread of life begins and things like that. Uh, but then you have Jesus' statement, you have seen me, but you are not believers. You're not believing in me. And through at least verse 45 is the key text that then moves back into Jesus' uh, body is, uh, and, and, and blood, uh, the issue of the centrality of him as the source of life. And then, yeah, you get, you get into the end, and Jesus is saying to them, in the imperfect, uh, repetitively in the past, um, he's saying to them, no one, no one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. 
Um, and then you have the disciples walking away, um, the eleven at least, to whom most shall we go, um, and you have the words of eternal life, and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. And so, that's sort of obvious. It, it's, it's not like it's not like any of these verses are separated from each other. There is a um, there is a clear connection. In fact, you can't just say verse thirty nine because it's it's thirty seven through forty five minimally as a block. And the only way to exegete these texts meaningfully is to follow and allow the text to define what terms. You know, I'll raise them up to eternal life. Who's being raised up to eternal life? If you don't just walk through the text, and I don't mean just read all of John 6. He read all of John 6 in this video. I mean, literally read read the English translation, I think from the New King James Version. I'm like, okay, it's an hour and a half video. It didn't need to be an hour and a half video. <laughs> you, you, you didn't need to do that. That's not what exegeting the text is. It's not just simply sitting there reading it in English. It's following the meaning. It's pulling out the meaning in a consistent fashion in following the text through. Um, this is not something that I, you know, he when, he when he talks about how to do hermeneutics and stuff like that, he uses perfectly good language of, uh, you know, not reading your thoughts into the text and context and historical background, all that's fun stuff. But then when you get to actually doing it, that's not what's happening. It's, um, it's a little bit, a um, little bit strange. Um, so here's a, um, Here's a summary statement that, that will help us to sort of put stuff together. What the Calvinist draws as to a, a conclusion contextually and what they see in the text is that the Father draws people and gives people to the Son. The Son will not lose anyone in verse 39. And no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. I think he meant no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. In verse 44. And then knowing that not all people will be saved their logical deduction of what they believe is then just put in the the text is that the father doesn't draw everyone because if the father has to draw someone and then give them to the son and we know that not all people will be saved then the father is obviously not drawing every single person and then giving them to the son or else there'd be universalism right and so that's the argument, that's the reason, that's the logic that they have behind these verses now connecting it. And well, that's not, that's not why they're connected. We're, our, our beliefs flowing from the connection that those verses themselves have, which is what's problematic here because, for example, I don't think he ever, and again, I don't think he, it did not strike me that he had ever listened to any of the many, 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 many times we have walked through John chapter 6, and I think everyone would admit, even my critics would admit, uh, when we walk through John chapter 6, um, where's the... Huh. I don't have one of the original versions of this in here. I need to, I need to track that down. But uh, this is the more current printing of my little book, Drawn by the Father. This came out... Originally, wow. Uh, well, it says 2000, but it was well before that. That was the reprint from uh, from Great Christian Books. The original was right around the same time as this, actually. So this would be 91. Um, so 
we've been we've been giving the same uh, interpretation, understanding of John chapter six for thirty plus years uh, consistently on this program, um, in in books, in debates. Um, I think that radio debate, it really wasn't technically a debate, but that radio discussion I had with uh, Jimmy Aiken included John chapter 6 too, and that was quite some time back. So we've been very consistent on this. Very, very consistent for a long, long time. And it just not seemed to me that he had is even familiar with that. So, for example, one of the key textual realities that I emphasize in John chapter 6 is that all in in John 6 44 all who are drawn by the father to the son are raised up by the son and synergism requires there to be a distinction there uh well unless you take what sounds like the perspective that's being made here i'm not sure we'll we'll, we'll find out we'll listen to it together um but for most synergists, that's that's what they do. They break up John six forty four and they say the Father draws everyone. Um, but it's a, your free will choice as to whether you're going to accept or reject that, and therefore there's there's people who are drawn but who will not be raised up by Jesus due to their own not contributing what they need to contribute for that to take place. So that's not even addressed. Um, John 6.45 is quoted by him a number of times, not recognizing that what 6.45 is describing is what the drawing of the Father actually is. So there, there, he attempts to engage the text on a, on a level. But what we're going to discover fairly quickly here... Um, well, I, I, I'll wait. Let, let's, let, let, let me... Um, finish off this statement and then uh, we'll, and we'll get to them. As James White said, you, you just read the text and it's plainly there. And it's it's not. And I'm going to explain why. So the big, the big contention is, does the Father only draw some people, meaning that is God only saving an elect group of people? Okay. Does John chapter 6 support Calvinism? That's the argument, that's the claim, and we're here to debunk both of those things today. Okay, so again, there's you know, there's a purpose statement. We're gonna debunk Calvinism. Um well, okay, let's let's see if, if Calvinism ends up getting uh debunked in the process. To every man, okay? So just highlight how many times everyone, whosoever, every man, anyone who believes will be saved. Just just reference, do a catalog of that. Now, the thing that struck me here um, is that he seems to think this is in opposition to Reformed theology. And once again, um, how many times have I said it? Um, there has never been anyone who turned in true faith to Jesus Christ who did not find him to be a perfect and powerful Savior. Uh, the issue is who turns in true faith to Jesus Christ. Um, where does true faith come from? What's the nature of true and saving faith? What's the nature of man and his rebellion? You know, there's there's all sorts of, of things there, but the, the, the issue is is not, well, it's not believing. 
uh, leaving is not important in Calvinism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and it's like, uh, no, again, this is what makes you wonder what someone was doing for ten years. Uh, simply, simply being in a church that calls itself something. Uh, does not mean that you yourself embrace that or even fully understand what's what's being preached from the pulpit. Okay. Um, what's interesting is Calvinism really holds on to the five points where I really think that um, they don't have an argument for all five points because limited atonement, John Calvin didn't even believe in. Okay. So it's just amazing to me that that is the, the case that John Calvin advocated so strongly for um, for the other points, but did not, even in his commentary, believe that Jesus' death and his atonement was for the entire world. So okay, so I asked him, um, and I didn't, I, I should have asked him, have you read Dr. Nichols' article on this very subject? I didn't. I don't think he ever has. Um, but I asked him, uh, in your 10 years as a Calvinist, uh, when did you read The Death of Death and Death of Christ by John Owen? Because you just said they don't have an argument for, for limited atonement. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, how do you make that kind of a statement? I, I mean, you can you can get into this argument, and and I think he's getting a lot of this from um, Alan, who gets it from an Amaraldian fellow uh, that I knew years and years ago. But it doesn't seem to understand there's another side to these things, or it's disputable, or anything like that at all. But but. Have, have, have you read The Death of Death and The Death of Christ? We have lots of strong arguments for a particular redemption, limited atonement. Uh, I can draw them out of Romans chapter 8, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, I, can, I can pull them from all sorts of places and have. And didn't you ever hear any of these things being preached in your Calvinistic church? I just... It, that Again, that's just what I don't understand. Why... Why sit there looking into, into a camera and say, they don't have any arguments for this? I mean, I can forgive him for only reading certain people uh, and not being aware of the other side regarding Calvin on this, this topic. That's irrelevant. To say that there are no arguments for it. Um, obviously, never read The Potter's Freedom, uh, God's Sovereign Grace, any of my books on the subject, because we have entire chapters on uh, this exact uh issue. So it's sort of like, um, that's really strange, uh, that you would, uh, that you would come to that conclusion. Cause, uh, what were you doing for 10 years? There's over 90 times that the word believe is mentioned. And then you look back at the context and, and James kind of skirted this issue where, um, my first bullet point in John chapter six, we need to understand John through the lens of why the book says it was written. And John 20, 31 says that these things are written so that you may believe and that by believing you will have life in his name. And so we see the order there is faith precedes regeneration. But it now just let me just, we again, no Calvinist has any problem with belief Believing uh, the use of scripture means to bring this about. Nobody has any problem with that. And to try to turn John 20, 31 into an ordo salutis passage 
when it's simply saying that those who believe have life in his name. It's not saying you have the ability as a rebel sinner against God to do what's pleasing before God, and that is to have saving faith, which will result in regeneration. You talk about putting something in the text that ain't there. <laughs> well, there, he just, it's right there on the screen. Well, it was right there on the screen. Uh, right now, uh, there's, there's, what you, there's what you mean by putting something uh, in there that, that isn't there. Uh, but again, we're just sitting here wondering, what, what is this all about? Why, why, why come to these, these conclusions? Also, the focus is to anyone, anyone who believes will have everlasting life. That's the it didn't say anyone. It said that you may, the one who, who had received this word from God in Scripture. Um, again, reading into the text, anyone, no election, whosoever, which is actually everyone believing which doesn't come up, but we will have to point out fairly soon now uh, that Brother Jason does not understand the Greek language. And he made many numerous errors um, in this video, as we will point out. So I really don't know that he would be able to recognize that when in John 3.16, whosoever is literally all the believing ones. Because he doesn't understand the difference between verbs and participles um, and confuses them all the time. And we'll see that coming up here. Emphasis that we see. So, and this is the reason that John says this is why this book was written. Okay? It never, ever, ever says that all the elect believe. It never says that. So we got to be careful. This is really invalid argumentation. I, this is, this is on the exact same level as when my Muslim friends say, I can show them, uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm preaching on the I am sayings uh, of Jesus on Sunday, for example. And I can show them Jesus using the I am sayings of Jesus. I can show them, uh, he accepts the confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. Um, I can show them all these things. And what's their response? But it doesn't anywhere have Jesus saying, I am God, worship me. So because those specific words don't appear, he can be worshipped by his disciples. He can be called God by his disciples. But that's not enough because you've got to have these specific words, which no Calvinist has ever said you have those specific words in the first place. But he keeps doing this over and over again saying, well, it, it doesn't use this phraseology, it doesn't use that phraseology, as if that's an argument. Um, it can be turned on his position just as easily when we expose the presuppositions that he is embracing and has embraced in his new synergistic perspective. He's embracing all sorts of presuppositions, and we could point them out and say, but it's not in this phraseology, but what good is that? I mean, it's just... Unfortunately, it's a it's a waste of time of inserting words and inserting maybe our presuppositions into words mm -hmm. when it comes to reading the scriptures. Let's just deal with what the text says. Yes, let's do okay? that. Don't put things on the text that aren't supposed to be there. Yep. Just read what it says. Okay. But I know that if you do that, then you're not going to fall into Calvinism. Okay. Because it's whosoever believes. It's uh, it's actually every believing one. <laughs> You're putting something in there, but you just not. I, I just I'm sorry. You just don't seem to be aware of it, as as we will see as we as we go along here. 
Um, just a couple more before we get into some of the real heart of the issue here. Uh, we're 25 minutes in, actually. And then in John 6, 27, this is in the context of John 6, Jesus says, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And him is meaning Jesus, not him meaning the uh, receiver of that seal. Okay, And this is where it's helpful to know uh, and this is just one small element why I appreciate like the, the new King James is that him is capitalized and it's just good to know that when anything that is referencing who God is versus a person, if you don't know, especially for a new Bible reader, it's going to be super helpful to know, okay, that him is not about him as in a general sense of anyone who the God, the father has set his seal on. God has set his seal on the son of God. Okay, Jesus, that's who he set his seal on. And we might miss those things. I don't think uh, one that is a, a studier or a true studier of the word, but anyone that's a new believer and you're being fed Calvinism and you read that, even though you probably weren't taught it, it might advocate and make you think that, okay, that's this is another text that's advocating for Calvinism because you don't know that that hymn is meant to refer to Jesus and not uh, man, mankind in general. Okay. Yeah, see what happens when you get fed Calvinism? I I, I listen to this, I'm sitting there going, you do realize the capitalization of pronouns in regards to deity is completely editorial. The NASB does it, NKJV does it, I don't think the ESV does. Um, it's completely editorial, there's nothing in the original language that indicates capitalization in, in any way, shape, or form. The original, the original New Testament was written in all capital letters anyways, uh, so there wouldn't be any way to even indicate that. Um, but, and I can't even imagine, I mean, Calvin never said that. I, I've never, it's obvious what it's saying, but you see, you're starting to hear this, you know, Calvinism is the, the big boogeyman. It's, it's, it's that bad thing you've got to try to avoid. And, and it's like, but that's not even an issue. I, I don't, I, I can't begin to understand it. So it's a little bit strange, a little bit strange. Now, he did sort of jump ahead of himself, and he admits that, but this is where we start getting into some of the interesting areas in regards to claims regarding the original text. Do this. Um, and then the word all is used. And and it doesn't explicitly say what all means in John 6, 37. Uh, but let's read it again. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. I've got two, I've got two things here. Because, and we'll, we're going to go into this, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. One thing I want you to notice, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be jumping ahead probably a little bit in, in making this comment from like the notes that I have, is that all does not say all elect people. All people that were given before the foundation of the world. It doesn't say those things explicitly. So before we jump in, and say that's what it is contextually communicating, we need to pause back up and just say, okay, is that what it's actually saying? Okay, so just take off the Calvinism glasses and let's back up and let's really now look through the context. And of course, um, all we need to do is look at that text. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
the giving by the Father precedes, conditions, and determines the coming to Jesus. So every person who has come to Jesus does so because they have been given to Jesus by the Father. There is no such such thing as a person who comes to Jesus outside of having been given by the Father to the Son. That's the issue. Now, if you want to put that together with what you get from John 10 and John 17 and Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and and come up with a theology to describe all this, fine. But the point is that there is a unquestionable reality in the text that the giving of the Father determines coming to the Son. And that's in the context, by the way, of Jesus just having said, you don't believe in me. And he said that to people who rode boats across the lake to come hear him speak. You don't believe in me. And, by the end of the chapter, they're going to walk away. They're going to walk away, demonstrating the truthfulness of what he was saying. Um, So, don't be distracted by all the, well, it doesn't use this phraseology. That's completely irrelevant. It's obviously been effective in convincing him, um, but it's irrelevant argumentation. And that's one of the valuable things about engaging this way, um, is to be able to demonstrate uh, that. So, now, here is the primary thesis. Here is the primary thesis um, that I think is really behind all of this. And I really think this has been taken from Leighton Flowers. Uh, it, it, it seems to have the same uh, underlying concepts here. Uh, let's, let's hear what it says. So if you've heard and you've learned, you've, you now are basically given the opportunity to now choose to trust or choose to reject. Okay, so we're seeing this theme woven through the Gospel of John. So here's what I see what's being communicated. If you do not believe in the Father, you will not come to the Son. If you know God the Father, you would come to the Son. This is the context of the book of John before Jesus gets to John chapter 6 and after John chapter 6. Okay, so look at before. So John 5.38, it says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him, that being Jesus himself, you do not believe. I just realized something. None of the pronouns here are capitalized. <laughs> I'm sure that was just a whoops uh, in copying and pasting, I suppose. I don't know. But given what was said earlier, I'm, I'm sitting here going, uh, those are supposed to be capitalized, uh, at least in light of what was said before. But um, okay, anyway. So Jesus tells him. You don't believe because the word is not abiding in you. You are not a true worshiper of the one true God. And if you were, you would believe. So catching this, if you're a worshiper of the one true God, then you're going to believe in Jesus. And you have the ability freely of yourself, not outside of any choosing by God the Father. 
So the election of the Father is simply to give true worshipers, people who truly worship him, freely, by their own free will, choice meets, um, to the Son. That's So it's not personal election. It's a general, I will do this in light of people who do this type of an idea. Okay? You, you, you getting the getting that idea uh understanding in me that's what he's saying john 5 42 through 43a but i know that you do not have the love of god in you i have come from my father's name and you do not receive me okay now you see what's going on here this is the chapter right before john chapter 6. so that's very important okay so this is similar to what michael brown did too he went to John chapter 5, and Jesus is saying, you know, if you truly loved God, you would love me, and that's that's great, fine, wonderful. Problem is, there, who is Jesus addressing? This is something, it, it amazes me, they talk about context all the time, but they don't notice something. In John chapter 5, he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to religious leaders. He's talking to individuals who make who, who have um, religious standing in the community. And in John chapter 6, who's he talking to? Unknown individuals who have rowed across the lake um, after hearing him speak, and they're looking for more signs. You, have, you, know, you fed 5,000 yesterday. Cool. Uh, we'll, we'll even make you king. Um, but they're just, they're just a crowd. And they're looking for signs. And they've they they think they've seen something really cool, but they haven't gotten it, and they become scandalized when Jesus says, Hey, don't work for the bread that that perishes, but for that which abides unto eternal life. That is me. They become scandalized by the centrality of who Jesus is. And so there's a different context there. Then you get here into John chapter 8, and I think this is really important. Because there are key texts um, in John chapter 8 that turn the normal synergistic perspective on its head. And so let's see what Brother Jason has to say. Uh, now, after John chapter 6, uh, 841b through 42a says, Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Jesus said to him, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Because if you were a true worshiper of the one true God, you would know that Jesus has come to fulfill and finish the work and that God has given all life and authority and judgment to him. Now, it's disappointing that he stops where he does. He stops at 42a. Um, but notice what actually says. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You cannot hear my word. There is a fundamental incapacity in you. Now, hearing and seeing, I can't tell you how many times, 
I've said one of the most fruitful studies you can do, and I've recommended to people for years and years and years, look at seeing and hearing in John. Uh, the blind man who ends up being able to see, for those who see, can't see. Um, and here, you cannot hear my word. Well, how are you supposed to have saving faith if you can't hear his word? Something has to change. Well, you are of your father, the devil. And so he does get to a important text when he gets to 46. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. It doesn't say you don't choose to be of God. Right? I mean, since we're doing the doesn't say this, doesn't say that thing, it specifically says, he who is of God or belongs to God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So, they, you know, he would say, that's right, they're not true worshipers of God. Right! And what is required to make them true worshipers of God? Didn't they have the, the freedom, the free will, to be able to do that on their own? Isn't that part of their, their capacity? Um, that's, that's one of the questions. Okay, I, I need to keep us moving here. Um, okay. Again, central argument repeated one more time. Then you look ahead at John 17, you see Jesus' prayer. In 17, Father, pray that they will be one as we are one, and that these that you've given me, those that have been drawn by the Father and given to the Son, are ones that have been true worshipers of God, and the true worshipers have come to God, known him to be the one true God, and the Father has given them now to the Son. So there it is. So it, it's not, it's not, God, God doesn't have any freedom here. You have true worshipers of God, and there's, there's no recognition that any true worshiper recognizes God's grace in their life that made them a true worshiper. Um, but these are true worshipers of God who evidently became true worshipers by their own free will, by their own capacity. There's no election. And those are the only ones, evidently, that the Father can give to the Son. But again, as I pointed out earlier, this introduces a real conundrum because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. But they can come to the Father without being drawn. So you can truly come to and worship one member of the Godhead, but not another member of the Godhead without something special happening. You, you, you see what happens when you try to get around <laughs> what, what, the, what the Bible is saying as a whole? You end up in some really messy places. And where do you get any of that in Scripture? Obviously, you don't. Uh, that, that's not scriptural teaching. And so... This is this is a real problem here. Um, so we press on.
All right. So if you look at verse 33, again, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The word gives is in a present active, it's a present active verb. This means that the giving is an ongoing action or an habitual action that's taking place. Okay. And so Jesus is the bread of life come down from heaven by the father to do the father's will and gives life to the world. And this giving is a continual thing that's happening. Okay. And so the present active verb tells us that that is what it means. Okay, so this is where you start getting into, and eventually, as we're going to see, he's going to put up on the screen stuff from, I think, what's called the Blue Letter Bible. I've not used it. Um, but it's a it's parsing stuff, where it's parsing the various terms. And here's, here's where you get into problems, okay? Why don't you take him down a second, because I need to, what I need to do is I need to get um, accordance about the same size so I can just pop it over and just lay it over the screen without getting rid of the other one. So that's what I'm, I'll just go ahead and leave this here for now. Is it? Blue Letter Bibles from Calvary Chapel? Rich says Blue Letter Bibles from Calvary Chapel. I have no earthly idea. Um, like I said, I've never used it. Um, here is John 6.33. Um, and what he is saying is that gives is a present active verb. And here's one of the problems. He doesn't know the difference between a verb and a participle. Um, because that's actually a present active participle, masculine singular nominative, as you can see over on the right-hand side there if you have accordance. Um, kata binon, likewise, uh, is a substantival participle. Uh, the one coming down out of heaven. And what we're going to see a number of times in this uh, study is the danger of what I saw happening when, for a number of years, I taught in the late 90s into the early 2000s. I taught Greek and Greek exegesis, Hebrew and Hebrew exegesis for Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary in their Arizona campus. And I taught Greek a number of times more than I taught the Hebrew. They, they only asked me to do the Hebrew because the guy they had teaching Hebrew couldn't get anybody through first year Hebrew. So they asked me and I managed to pull it off. But anyway, um, I would have 15 weeks, 15 meetings three-hour meetings, so 45 hours grand total. But you generally, the, the first week is a wash because you're doing introduction. And the last week's a wash because you've got the final. So you only have 13 weeks. So you got about 39 hours grand total. There were many weeks 
during that time where you'd have to do two, sometimes three chapters in one night. That, that is not ideal. I was teaching mounts, um, which is great stuff. It's very friendly. But it was really not designed to go that fast either. And I was always concerned about teaching people to hate Greek rather than to love Greek. And I certainly tried to, to do that. But anyway, um, what happened eventually, and I made mention of this before, is that they changed stuff so you could actually fulfill your language requirement in a Jan term class. Uh, Jan term, January term classes, I, I taught Christian philosophy, religion a number of times, Jan term classes. And they're an intensive class that meets just over the course of a, a number of days. It's less than two weeks. Um, and to, to say that you have studied Greek by taking a Jan term class means all you're doing is learning how to use Logos. Back then, it was either Logos or Bible Works. I think those are about the only things. PC Study Bible was around, but it wasn't as advanced as those anyways. And here's the danger. I, th these programs are wonderful. Parsing programs are wonderful. I'm sure Blue Letter Bible is just wonderful. But if you don't actually learn the language, you end up making mistakes like this. A participle is not a finite verb. And the one thing you need to understand is even when the participle is functionally is functioning in an verbal fashion over against substantival. So if it has an article, it's functioning as a the emphasis. A participle is a mixture. It has verbal aspects and substantive aspects, noun aspects, if you want to use that term. So it can have an article. Just like a noun can. Verbs don't have articles. But it has tense, mode, and voice. But that's what verbs have. And so participles, when, when in second year, when I learned all the syntactical categories for participles, that's when Greek really started to pop for me. Um, and But it's very complicated. And just learning what present is. There are a number of times you're going to hear him say, this is a present indicative active tense. No, those are three different things. <laughs> um, and to even say it that way is shows ultimate confusion. And to have this very simplistic idea of, well, the present always means this and the aorist always means that. No, it doesn't. Um, I warned people when I taught them first year Greek. I said, now, you know, we're getting toward the end of first year Greek. And you can now recognize, now, when I first started teaching long, long ago, back in the 80s, I used, I don't have mine in here, but I have, I even have my dad's version of it. My dad and I learned from the same grammar. Uh, Manti, uh, not, not Manti, um, Davis. Yeah, Davis's grammar. And uh, once you, Davis taught you what's called the 8K system. So you had nominative, genitive, ablative, locative, instrumental, dative, accusative, and vocative. Most modern grammars now use a 5K system because the genitive and the ablative have the same form. 
And so to distinguish between them is really an interpretational thing. And then locked of instrumental data is all the same form. And again, it's, it's interpretational as to how you're dealing with it. And so I tell my students, you're, you're so excited that you can recognize genitives and ablatives now, right? Once you start second year Greek, you'll discover there are at least 12 different kinds of genitives. And a smaller number of ablatives, but the point is, that's uh, no, right. Uh, Rich ran and got his copy of, uh, of uh, the beginning grammar before we did mounts. Um, and uh, what does that say? It had my name on it? Oh yeah, the, the, I don't know why they did it with that. Mine was the same way. There's, it's that it's never ever even. It's very strange. Um, anyway, there's there's much more to the basic identification of a noun as a genitive or a verb as a present. There's all sorts of kinds of presents. There are historic presents, which have no emphasis whatsoever on ongoing action. There are his. The, the historical present, for example, uh, I think the NASB for years, I think up to 95, I think they finally took it out. Uh, but they tried to indicate when they were uh, translating a present with a past tense in English because it's being used as a, as a historical present. It's not emphasizing ongoing action at all. And you get into all of the verbs. There's, you know, uh, in, in the imperfect, uh, uh, you, you can have, you know, an aggressive form. Because it's normally continuous action in the past, uh, but it can emphasize the beginning of that action or the end of that action. And there's all sorts of different kinds of aorists, even though that's the simplest way to state action. And it doesn't always mean point action. That's what I was taught initially, but... Clearly, that's not the emphasis there. Um, it's all very contextually based, and it's a whole lot more than what you simply learn reading the instructions on Blue Letter Bible or something like that. That's just looking at those. Once you get to the participles, they, they, you take all that and squish it together, and you end up with something that he clearly doesn't understand, and that is that... You still have tense uh, in the participle, but now it is no longer based upon the perspective of the speaker or the writer. It's now based upon the relationship of the participle to the main verb of the clause. Which now, if you're seen in, just off the top of my head, I'm not going to go to it right now, and I, I need to hurry this up, but you know the big dispute in uh, Acts chapter 19. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Pistusantes. I'm thinking it's, off the top of my head, as I recall, it was an aorist participle. Yeah, sigma alpha, so it's, it's an aorist participle. And the King James translated, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? Now, whether you use when or since is interpretational depending upon how you understand how an aorist participle interacts with, I think it was an aorist finite verb. Again, I, I'm not going to bring it up right now. Um, because 
a present tense participle with an aorist verb is different than two aorists, which is different. There's whole charts of the possibilities of subsequent action, concurrent action, antecedent action, and it's all based upon, you know the difference between a participle and a finite verb. Which Brother Jason doesn't. And so, he says a lot of really confusing stuff, confused stuff, because he doesn't know. The language is painfully obvious to me. He does not actually read the language himself. But he makes conclusions about how Calvinism's wrong based upon his own misunderstandings of the Greek language. And I can assure you, uh, Calvinists have been very uh, strong in emphasizing biblical languages. The Puritans, you know, in England in the 1600s, you couldn't get your masters until you could debate in Greek. Not read Greek. Debate in Greek. <laughs> That's, which most people can't do today. I can assure you of that. Um, so this is this is sort of um, this is sort of important stuff. So he's saying, see, you know, it's 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 giving life to the world. No, um, actually, uh, the primary verb is uh, esten. Uh, for the bread of God is ha kata binon, the one coming down from heaven. Kaizoane deduce. So cosmos, so cosmos. So deduce is from didomy, and so it's not the main verb, but he's treating it like it's the main. It's the main verb. He doesn't discuss its relationship to the main verb. He's just going, oh look, it's a present, therefore it means this. No, that's not how it works. Um, that's. That's the kind of hyper-literality that ignores syntax that second-year Greek is intended to cure you of. Uh, that's when your professor has to be going, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's present, but remember, what's, what, what are we looking at again here? Oh, yeah, it's a participle. Okay, and, and all right, so now we need to find our main verb, looking at a clause, you know, subclause. And, you know, there's all sorts of other stuff that, that goes into it, which you can't get from an online resource. You've got to actually take the class, learn the language. And so you, it, it's just like, I even see paid advertisements on Twitter. It drives me nuts. I was getting a bunch of them until I finally muted them. Um, you're not actually understanding what the Bible says about the creation of Adam until you read it in the original Hebrew. Spend thirty nine ninety five on our book, and we'll tell you. You know, and it's it's almost always Hebrew. Uh, I, I suppose I've seen some for Greek, but it's almost always these people hawking some kind of uh, the shapes of the letters represent this, that, and the other thing. And it's just a bunch of hooey. Uh, so be careful about buying hooey. We don't want to buy hooey. Hooey's hooey's not good to buy. Um, so we go back. Oh, where did I? Where'd my thing go? Ah, very good. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes, okay. I know where I am now. Yay. I actually only have four things left, but one of them is 10 minutes long of interaction. So that's, and yeah, there you go. Now, let's go to verse 35, where it's Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The word the word comes is in the present middle form, which means this is an action taken by the subject. Okay? I want you to hear that clear. He who comes to me is in the present middle form, which means that the action is taken by the subject. Okay, I want you to see what's on the screen right now, okay? Which is not me. Um, I want you to see what's on the screen right now. Comes is in the present middle, an action taken by the subject, and the responsibility is on the individual. Wow. Greek tells you all that, huh? Well, no. Um, now, I asked him a question in Twitter, and a um, younger Greek professor um, and I got into a little discussion, because for most of the past 200 years, uh, when you learned Greek, you learned a group of verbs that were called deponents. And they are verbs that appear only in the middle form, but they are active in their translation in English. Now, a number of years ago, papers started appearing, and then some grammar started appearing that said, no, this is a misunderstanding. There are certain verbs that only appear in the middle, in, in the form of the middle, middle passive, depending. Um, and they really are middle, but because of, they tend to be very old verbs. And, you know, Greek, Greek has existed for a long, long time. And so, for example, there is a difference between the Greek of the Septuagint and the Greek of the New Testament. There had been, even in that two to three hundred years, there had been um, evolution, development. And so it's, it, I mean, you can read the Greek Septuagint if you can read the New Testament, but you'll notice some differences. And of course, classical Greek is hard for a Koine reader. That's why Hebrews, Acts, and Luke are level 10 difficulty in the New Testament because I think the same person wrote all through them. <laughs> um, and there is much more of a the syntax is very different. The vocabulary tends to be more classical. So there's there's development over time. So old folks like me were taught that erkamai is a deponent. So it's in middle form, but it's translated actively. And the Greek professor uh, pointed to the fact that there has been, over the past... 20 years, um, a number of papers, and like I said, I think at least one or two grammars have come out, and they're saying, no, deponents are only relevant in Latin. Um, these are true middle forms, but they're ancient verbs, and because they're very ancient verbs, they're, they're translated into our language as actives. And they have to be, because we don't have any other way of understanding them, but there's still there's still an element of action in reference to the subject. Okay? 
So that that's a I'm I'm well aware of developments in this area, but I'm now old enough to go let's give it a while. When you're younger, you you grab onto the newest thing. When you get older, you've seen some of those newer things come along and then they didn't really pan out. And so you're a little slower and it's just the process of scholarship. If the argumentation is good enough and solid enough, then it will become the mainstream. But the nature of Western scholarship is such as someone's always looking for a way to challenge the mainstream. That's how you get published. That's how you get a name for yourself. And so I go, okay, I hear what you're saying. All right, I, I get it. I understand that. But fundamentally, um, we're not... That, that conversation isn't overly relevant to what he's saying here. Because there is nothing here about responsibility is on the individual. That's just... That, that would have to be derived from the meaning of the verb, the con context in which it is used. To, to drive that from a present middle, especially from something like Erkamai, which is only found in middle passive forms, is the essence of bad Greek eisegesis. I don't really understand this language. I don't read this language. I can't sit there. I can't, I can't grab a Greek New Testament, and I, I can't open up to the Gospel of John, um, and I, I can't read it. I, I can't, can't go on from there. So, you know... Uh, therefore again he said to them I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins where I am going you are not able to go now am I familiar with John 8? yep did I just translate that correctly? yep is there any English in here? nope um, you, you have to be able to Pars on the fly, and and it has to be, you have to get past parsing. Of course, is looking at a, at a, at, a, at a word, recognizing what its root is, and is is it a noun? Is it a verb? Adverb? Adjective? Is it some other part of speech that's helping things along? And to be able to read it with speed, you you have to start seeing the relationship between words, and. Erkamai is a really basic standard verb. And you should know that what it means and that it appears in the middle passive. Um, and you're not going to do this to it. You're not going to go, that means the responsibility is on the individual. No, it doesn't. Could there be a, a place where you could derive a meaning like that? It has to come from the meaning of the verb. It has to come from the use of the verb in a particular passage. There's all sorts of stuff that has to be there. And our brother here doesn't know any of that and doesn't even try to establish that. He's looking at a parsing program going, look, present middle, an action taken by the subject. Well, Erkamai is I come. And so the subject is moving himself. And so that's where the idea is as far as the ancient form of the verb was concerned, but all the rest of this stuff, you're confusing that with 
taking when you take a verb that can appear in all the different voices uh it can be an active middle passive um when you do that then and let's say the same let's say the same author uses the verb in that way then in in all those different ways well then you can say he's specifically seeking to communicate something here um but especially well i was going to get into the the thing in first corinthians uh, 13 and use the middle there has had a lot of weight put on it but we'll we'll not get into that right now but point is this looks impressive to people unless you actually know the language and then you go uh you 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 do be reading stuff into this <laughs> i don't think you're familiar with what's really going on here uh we uh we press on so the one who is coming is taken responsibility is on the person okay the subject he is in the definite article the okay so now he's he's looking down he's reading notes and i'm assuming that what he's referring to if we're still i think went to verse 35 it's ha erkamenos The one coming. That's a that's a participle. It's a substantival participle. It's not even a finite verb. If we if did he move from 33 to 35? I think he did. I'm looking at my thing here. Uh looks like it, but it's not lighting up for me right now. But I think we're in 35. If we're in 35, then here. Come on. I wonder why it won't let me do that. I thought I'd just be able to drag it over here, but it doesn't want to do that. So I am little concerned about. Oh, I, I'll bet you it'll let me do it now. Yes, there we go. So for verse 35, Jesus said to them, Ego, I mean, I am. Artos taste zoes, the bread of life. Now he's going to jump all over Artos here in a moment, and it's going to get really strange. Ha erkamanos. This is erkamai. But this is a substantival participle. That's why it has an article in front of it. Ha erkamanos. Now he says, well, the, 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 the he is in the article. Well, okay, but the, the article matches the participles being used with, and erkamenos is a masculine singular form. The one coming to me, ume, I wonder if he, I wonder if he knows what ume means. You know what the error subjunctive, subjunctive strong denial is? Um, he will never hunger, kai ha pistuon, okay, you see the article? Pistuon, again, masculine, singular, participle, substantival participle, the one believing in me, ume, aristojunctive strong denial, dipsesai popate, will never thirst. Strong strong denial, this will ever happen. 
So, obviously, the parallels between Ha Erkamanos and Ha Pistium, the one coming, the one believing, and these are present tense. And I think, but I, I, I have to make this argument from John, I think the present tense is relevant in the, distrip, the, the description of what a true believer is. Why do I say that? I've made this argument, and I think... Um, I don't remember if I include like a footnote in the Potter's Freedom, or if I only developed it in Drawn by the Father. I don't actually remember. It's been decades. Um, let's see if you remember what you wrote in a footnote decades from now. Um, I still remember a lot of footnotes that I wrote decades ago, but not necessarily that one. Uh, in John, I think you can make a strong argument that in places where he is referring to false faith, he specifically um, utilizes the aorist. So in John chapter 8, to those who had believed in him, aorist, not present, uh, he said, if you continue my word, then you're my disciples indeed, you should know the truth, the truth shall make you, set you free. And they're the ones that end up picking up stones to stone him. In uh, John chapter 2, when the people saw the miracle and they believed in him, it says Jesus did not believe himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in man. Aorist tense for their belief. And so you can provide examples in John where false faith is seen and it's in the aorist. And it's contrasted with present tense faith, ongoing uh, type faith. So, there are places where present tense is not emphasizing ongoing action at all. But in this case, why, why, why use present tense substantival participles to describe the one coming and the one believing? Is there a context in John where false faith is seen? There is. And I think that's why, why you have what you have there. But, um, anyways, there's, there's 635, and I think I can do that, and then I have to do that, and hope everything doesn't crash, and we... The way that on. you could say this is, the one who comes to me. That's another way that this could be expressed. Uh, meaning the person is the one choosing to believe and the responsibility is on the individual. Okay, did you catch that? Nothing he just said. Need to come back to me. Hello, there we go. Nothing. <laughs> John, Rich was so blown away by that that, that he froze. I, I saw it in the other room. It was, it was, it was terrible. It was, uh, it was it's, so what happens when people crash cars and stuff like that? Just, just freeze. Um, that was that is all just read in <laughs> everything responsibility capacity ability. he he didn't provide any of that he may think that he may really think he's onto something here because you know it's he thinks he understands the present tense but he doesn't understand the present tense substantive participle and uh I, I i i don't know but all of a sudden we have 
capacity and ability and responsibility and all the rest of this stuff. And it's it's coming from your your parsing of a, of a few a few verbs and participles that you don't know are actually participles. Wow. Okay. That's here is the danger, folks. This happens a lot, and and this is why I was so upset when they made Greek a Jan term class because, and there are a lot of seminaries doing it. There are a lot of seminaries doing it. Why not? We've got these awesome programs now. I can I can stick my, you know, uh, cursor on any of these things, and and there's the parsing, there's the lexical form, there's the parsing. Why should we bother people with 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 the? Why should we have people that are unhappy and and they don't graduate because they didn't pass Greek or something like that? Let's just let's just use what we got here, and we can do more leadership programs and. Uh, more more classes on you know how to do finances in your church and all the rest of that kind of stuff, and that's that's what's happened. The problem is, you can look at you know I, I'm on Pistuone right now. Uh, present active participle masculine singular nominative to believe trust, but that doesn't tell you that it's substantival, and a substantival participle is different. Than a participle that's that's functioning functioning much more in the verbal realm. The 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 emphasis on certain aspects of like the verbal as, verbal thing you have to you have to demonstrate from context that the present is is still overly relevant in a substantival use, where it's it's going to be more naturally assumed when it's more in the verbal use. So, these are things you, you, when when a pastor who goes through a seminary that doesn't force them to learn these things, picks up a commentary, that pastor is not in a position to be able to analyze the argumentation of the commentary. And I've told you the stories, I'm not going to repeat it right now, but I've told you the stories of where that can become disastrous. You start getting to pick and choose which commentaries you want to use, depending on what they say, instead of um, being able to analyze and even go, huh, yeah, that ain't what it's saying. <laughs> My commentary blew that one, and it happens. But if, if you can't actually, if you don't know what a participle is, or an infinitive, and how they function, or how adjectives function and adverbs function and everything else. You're left mercy of whatever you're reading. And it also allows you to read into a text stuff that isn't actually there. And that's what we're seeing here. Um, and I literally have uh, three more minutes of this and I'm... We'll do, we'll do a little bit more, and then we will have to uh, split this into two, because I, I, I don't want to. Well, I don't know. Let's see. There's a lot that we can add to this and really exposit the text, but I'm trying to just debunk the element of yeah. Calvinism being this verse is actually advocating. Did you catch that? We can go a whole lot deeper than the errors I just gave you, but we're only here to debunk Calvinism. Ouch! 
that that's oh to say that right after um what you just said oh hurts um that, that's that's a problem that 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 yeah that that's a problem but a couple little things that i just think is really cool so when jesus said that he is the bread of life um the word bread is actually raised show bread I'm looking at the screen up there. Even, I guess this is the blue letter Bible. I'm, I'm assuming. Does that look familiar at all to you, Rich? Because you said you've used it. No? But you haven't used it for parsing stuff and things like that. Just the maps. Says it's got good maps. Okay, all right. Timeline, good. All right, fine. I've not seen this before. Um, But I, I don't know where this came from. And I'm sure... I mean, I didn't take time to look back at it. But I would imagine that when the showbread is mentioned in the Greek Septuagint, that it probably is artos. Um, but artos means bread. <laughs> it just it just it just means bread. And it, it may have been used in some instance to to mean Raised showbread, something like that. But Artos, it, when you when you take Greek, um, I'm over here. When you take Greek, there you go. Um, Rich is Rich is Rich is following the subject too much. That he's forgetting he's got a job to do over there. See, today I should have the ATEM. <laughs> I should have this hooked up, and he can just sit over there and enjoy the substance of the program. He's He's, he's not paying attention. Um, well, he is paying attention, just not to what he's supposed to be doing. Anyway, uh, it just means bread. It doesn't mean raised show bread here. It just simply means bread, the bread of life. What? But, but if, if you're going to stretch it, if you're going to go, and you know what? That's what's in context here. Um, the context is manna. He well, shifts to Artos after talking about manna. <laughs> just saying. It just means bread. <laughs> it's it's just the bread. Uh, Artos tastes a waste. The bread of life. Uh, beautiful. But you don't have to complicate things by saying it's the raised showbread. And as if there's some form of the word that would tell you that. It doesn't. It, it just it just means bread. That's that's all there is to it. If you know Jewish culture and there there is this element of showbread that I'm not going to have time to to really draw out here, but Jesus is saying he is the raised showbread. That's what he's saying. He's the bread of life. This element of life is absolute fullness of life. Okay, that's what the original language means. It's just um <clears throat> again this is called interpretation. It's called um, application. But he's confusing it with exegesis. It zoes means life. <laughs> it's it's, it's it, it, that that's that's the genitive singular form. Uh, so it's descript it's descriptive. So ha artos tastes zoes. Ha artos tastes zoes. Is it the bread of life? Now you can have discussion. I mean, genitives are extremely rich because they're they're your descriptive words and so you can have ablative functions something come from 
but you can have subjective genitives and objective genitives, and there's all sorts of arguments. Um, the faith of Christ in Paul is that objective, subjective, how do you translate that, how do you interpret There's all sorts of genitives, cool stuff. Uh, you got to have something for Greek professors to write papers about. You know, I mean, other than that, their life is really boring, poor things. So, but to say absolute fullness of life, and that's what the original language says. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Prove it. So, so if I, if I pull up um, what's called Thesaurus Lingua Greci. Thesaurus Lingua Greci is a, we used to have a CD-ROM of it. And then they went to a subscription thing, which we have an active subscription to. Uh, Rich can confirm that because he has to pay for it. Um, and that is basically a complete collection of all ancient Greek literature. And I can look up Zoe, the lexical form, nominative singular. And every time I find Zoe in... Plato, Aristotle, um, any of the, the Greek historians, um, whatever. Every time it finds a way, it means absolute fullness of life? No, it doesn't. Every time I find Artos, <laughs> does it mean raised showbread? Nope. This is, this is an abusive language. This is, this is claiming stuff that just ain't there. And people who can't read the language are left going, oh, okay. But when you can read the language, you go, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> you would not translate that any other place. You, would, you wouldn't translate it that way in other contexts. Because you're not translating it in the first place. You're using a parsing program. And it's misleading. Amazing you. to see. Now, comes... Uh, is coming from one place to another, and that action is in the middle present done by the responsibility of the individual, the one who comes, is what's being said here. Now, so we already debunked that, right? Uh, we already pointed out that's Erkamanos, and that's from Erkamai. It's actually a participle. It's a subtype of participle. It's the one coming. Um, and there's nothing about responsibilities, capacities, abilities, any of these types of things. Uh, that's being read in. It's not a part of the original language at all. It's just um, where it's coming from. Who knows? And then he'll never hunger. And he that is also the definite article, literally meaning that these that, so anyone that believes and believes is in the present active, which now tells us that the belief is on the responsibility of the person and not not it's not passive okay so it's not something that's being given to them by god and see what's going on here he's pretending again he doesn't even know he's dealing with a participle so he's not dealing with the the participle in relationship to the a finite verb so not even getting close to actually dealing with the language but notice the application well, you see, it would have to be in the passive if faith is being given as a gift. Why? Why? There's nothing here that tells us anything whatsoever 
about where this faith came from um, in any way, shape, or form. It's simply describing who is the one believing and the one coming. It is present tense. And I think there is a theological ramification as to the nature of saving faith. But as I did earlier, I said, and that's due to an overall context in John, where the same verb, pistuo, when it's used in the aorist, isn't referring to uh, saving faith. I think, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure, I think there was a weird pluperfect somewhere in John with pistuo that was somewhat controversial. I, I may look that up for the fun of it. Then again, I may forget before we get done to this. But you see what's going on here? All this, this looks really impressive to people. But it's shadows. It's make-believe. It's, you take, you try to, you try to, you try to test out a first-year Greek with this kind of stuff? Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> you're gonna be failed, uh, and appropriately so, because you don't know what you're doing here as regeneration or faith. So this is not given by God. This is something that the text clearly, clearly says is the responsibility of the individual. Okay? And it's not... So, there you go. Here's, here's misusing Greek to read in your presuppositions. When you don't understand what you're talking about, you haven't derived it from the language at all, and you're cramming in there because it's what you want to do. Because you've said... We are here to debunk Calvinism. So we're going to debunk Calvinism. Now, problem is, uh, I now get to verse 37. <laughs> we now get to the heart of it. But we've already seen what the main problems are going to be. And so, my notes here literally say, to start here at 50 minutes and 39 seconds, and go through 60. That's nine minutes of material. And then there's one, one other thing after that. So there, there's no way I can do that and keep this in a, in a meaningful uh, length of time. So we will either do another Radio Free Geneva, because I'd imagine uh, if we combine that with our own um, hopefully sound exegesis of John 6, 37 and following, um, we, we could definitely fill up an hour or more uh, with that without too much of difficulty. So we'll, we'll, either do, we'll either do a whole just Radio Free Geneva or we'll do a Radio Free Geneva segment. I think we did that once before where I did like half an hour and then we played the theme. Because we got, we got to play the theme because there are certain addicts out there um, who, if you don't play the theme... At least once a month, they start like growing a second head, and it's really strange. It's very strange. Uh, Tim Bushong has an entire fan club out there. They paint their faces. It's really weird. Uh, very strange stuff. But um, we will continue at that point. Uh, let me just say um, to Brother Jason, I've had to repeatedly say, You don't know what you're talking about. And I don't mean that in a dismissive mean fashion 
I mean that as a person who's taught Greek for a long time, and I I read it, and I've worked through this text from every possible angle. I, I've lost track of how many counter-interpretations of John chapter 6 we have dealt with over the years. I mean, someone can find out if they want to because there's pretty much an exhaustive database at aomen.org. Press on, click on transcripts and put in John 6 and enjoy. You'll be at it for a long time. Um, But I'm saying this because it's painfully obvious to me as a person who has taught Greek. Now, let me just say something. I'm not teaching Greek right now. I, I wish I was. Um, my, my teaching responsibilities are... I'm doing a directed study as a professor at GBTS in a related field. I use Greek daily. I preach from the Greek text. I debate from the Greek text. Um, I use Hebrew, not necessarily daily, but um, I still use it, even though it's been a number of years since I actually taught a class. I forget when the last time was I taught Greek. It was an online class. It wasn't all that long ago. Oh, you know what? It was during COVID. Yeah, it was during COVID. I did do a a class during COVID. So it's been three or three years. So I want to make one comment as we wrap up. We've got enough time for me to do this without getting all the way to two hours. Um, there are a a professor who does nothing but teach the languages can be highly proficient and very specific in terminology because that's their life. I am, first and foremost, professionally an apologist. And as an apologist, I address a pretty wide variety of topics. Um, From textual criticism, Bible translation, issues in church history, Roman Catholicism, which involves all sorts of church history issues, but Roman Catholicism, its theology, its whole, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarianism, Islam, Quran, um, Quranic history, Hadith studies, atheism, presuppositional apologetics. Uh, I, I, I deal with a, a wide variety of stuff. And so you can have scholars that go far deeper into a topic than I can. But this is the range of their work. I'm doing this and trying to go as deep as I can this direction. And I don't understand, honestly, and I've said this on many webcasts other than my own, I don't understand why it is that amongst apologists, I'm not just an apologist, I'm a pastor of a church um, as well. And, you know, some of the stuff I was doing last night had to do with issues in the church. So I've got a lot of things going on other than these type of things. I've never understood why apologists in general don't know the languages. I don't understand it. it it's one of the greatest tools that I have. It, it's, it's been such a, an advantage to me in so many different situations. And I and again, sorry, I'll go. This will be the 
470th time you've heard this, but when I'm asked what two classes I took in Bible college and seminary that have been the most helpful to me in a career as an apologist over 40 years now, my answer has always been the same. Greek and church history. Greek and church history. Because those are areas that I don't know why, but apologists don't tend to have a whole lot of sound training in. And that's, um, that's problematic. Shouldn't be that way. Um, so I will, I'll remember where this is, uh, hopefully. <laughs> that's the famous last words. And we will pick up at 50 minutes, 39 seconds. Now, I, Jason, I, I said to you, do you want to leave this up? There are fundamental foundational errors in your understanding of Greek verbs, participles, the language, syntax, how to translate it. I don't believe you read Greek. I don't think, I don't, I don't recall you claiming that you did. But we just heard you saying the original language says this, and it says nothing like what you're saying. It says. So when we work through John 6, 37 and following, um, this is going to only become more of a drumbeat, I'm afraid. Because you've started off with assumptions that are wrong. They're just, there's errant. It's just not true. And so, um, that, that, that can't be enjoyable to have to listen to. Uh, but it, it needs to be said because you put it out there. And I, I gave you the opportunity. I even said, there are problems here. You, you've made some mistakes. You, you sure want to leave it there? And you have. So uh, I think we're being fair uh, to respond to what has been posted publicly and to correct it. And in the process, um, debunk your debunking. That's your terminology. You're, you're talking about the lies of the enemy. Um, I, don't, I don't have to be nearly as um, harsh as your language. To say, I just think you're a confused believer with, uh, without sufficient training to be able to recognize that what you've been given by certain bad sources is bad information. And um, so we're just responding to that. Okay, so we'll pick up at that point. Uh, I don't know if it'll be the next program or exactly how. There's, I almost start off today's program with stuff that's going on because there is stuff going on. There always is, it seems. Um, but we'll see. We'll see uh, when we get back with you next week. Thanks for watching the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless. Free Geneva. Broadcasting the truth about God's freedom to save for His own eternal glory.